What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. It's April 1973 in Santa Cruz, California, and a drunken woman has just arrived home from a party. Her 24-year-old son is up waiting for her. His massive six-foot-nine frame towers above her as they exchange brief words. After she falls asleep, he bludgeons her to death with a hammer. In the day following the murder, the man violently mutilates the body of his mother before stashing her in a closet. He then goes on to claim another victim, his mother's best friend. But these two women are not the first victims of this violent killer. The man has eight murders under his belt, including both of his paternal grandparents. But his main targets? Young, college-aged women. She was hitchhiking home from school. She was taken out to a remote area where she was shot in the head with a 22 caliber gun. The man leaves Santa Cruz and drives away in his final victim's car. He drives for three days and ends up in Colorado. He then enters a phone booth and calls the police. He dials the Santa Cruz Police Department. It's a busy Friday night in Santa Cruz. Officer says, Santa Cruz Police Department, can I help you? I need to talk to Lieutenant Shear. He doesn't work on the weekends. You'll have to call back on Monday. I got to put you on hold. He calls back and he finally says, Hey, I got information about all those dead girls. A master of deceit with an astonishingly high IQ, this man tricked society into believing he was a gentle giant for half a decade. Do I think Kemper is an evil man? The answer has to be yes. He is the definition of violence and evil. You pray nobody else is out there like that again. This is What Makes a Killer, a true crime series that chronicles the lives of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Edmund Kemper, the co-ed killer. Edmund Kemper was born on December 18, 1948. He lived in Burbank, California with his mother, Clarnell, his father, Edmund Sr., and his two sisters. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley says that Kemper's childhood was not a happy one. He came into the world in the post-war years, and rather than being a time of hope and a time of prosperity for him, it was a time of abuse, it was a time of neglect. Author and journalist Jeffrey Wansel says that, growing up, Kemper's parents had a tumultuous relationship. His father was a World War II veteran and had worked on nuclear testing before coming back after the war to work as an electrician. Ed's father used the expression, suicide missions were nothing compared to living with Clarnell. Clarnell was an extraordinary personality. Neurotic, aggressive, alcoholic, and utterly domineering. 
she terrorised both her husband and her son, favouring the two daughters. In 1957, when Kemper was nine years old, his parents divorced. Kemper's mother took him and his sisters to live with her in Helena, Montana. Kemper had some dark fascinations as a child. While most children were playing tag or hide-and-seek, Kemper played more sinister games. He would play games with his sisters, like gas chamber or electric chair. He would get them to tie himself to a chair, and then he would pretend to be electrocuted. Perhaps the most disturbing incidents of Kemper's childhood involved the family pets. He killed two of the family's cats, one when he was 10 and the other at 13. The first cat he buried alive, then dug up the body and mounted its head on a spike. The other he killed with a knife and then hid the body in his closet until it was discovered by his mother. When asked about the cats later in life, Kemper said he killed the second one because he believed it liked his sister more than him. When he was 10, Kemper's mother forced him to sleep in the basement. She was afraid that he would harm his sisters. Criminal psychologist Rex Bieber says this had a lasting effect on Kemper. Now, you could have two different views of this. One is that it's horribly cruel. And the other is, this is a mother who did the only thing she could to protect her daughter. Regardless of the explanation, from Kemper's point of view, it was torture. And he reviled his mother. Kemper had a deeply toxic relationship with his mother. Clarnell was incredibly critical of him, often verbally abusing him. She frequently bullied him, making fun of his large size. Kemper was six foot four by the time he was 15. She demeaned him and she abused him and, and basically ostracized him and made him feel terrible. Kemper expresses more than almost any serial killer I've ever heard of a hatred of his mother that's indescribable. When he was 14, Kemper left Montana and went to find his father in California. However, he was not greeted with the welcome he had anticipated. He goes and he finds his father, but his father doesn't really want to know because he's got a new life now, he has a stepson, he has this new family unit, and Ed feels incredibly rejected by that. Kemper lived with his father for a short time, but eventually was sent to live with his paternal grandparents on a farm in North Fork, California. This would prove to be a deadly decision. His grandmother is very similar to his mother. She's incredibly domineering. She's not particularly nice to him. The years of abuse and festering rage were about to boil over. On August 27, 1964, 15-year-old Kemper would kill for the first time. Journalist Jeffrey Wansell recalls the details of the fateful day. His grandmother is sitting at the kitchen table. Without really any warning, Kemper goes and fetches a rifle, which is in the house, and shoots her. In fact, he shoots her twice, just to make sure she's dead. Then he sits down at the kitchen table opposite the body of his grandmother and waits for his grandfather, and he shoots him too. Then, in a bizarre twist, Kemper made a surprising move. Immediately after he killed his grandparents, he calls his mother and he says, I've killed 
my grandparents. And she tells him, well, you, you stupid boy, just call the police and wait there until they arrive. And he sits there waiting for the police. He doesn't run, he doesn't do anything. And when they get there and explain, he said, why, I wanted to find out what it felt like to kill grandmother. Kemper was arrested and court psychiatrists diagnosed him with paranoid schizophrenia. He was then sent to Atascadero State Hospital in California, a maximum security facility for mentally ill convicts. While imprisoned, Kemper seemed to find peace for the first time in his life. He was an absolutely model inmate. Um, he helped the staff, he organized visits, he started doing psychiatric testing. They realized at Atascadero that he actually had an extremely high IQ, it was 145. He's very smart, very manipulative. And he did what many serial killers can do. He convinced the staff of the hospital that he was cured. And so he was released. On his 21st birthday, December 18, 1969, Kemper was set free and his criminal records as a juvenile were sealed. According to Detective Terry Medina, the psychiatric report conducted after his release made for shocking and ironic reading. The report stated in part, Edmund Kemper is no longer a danger to society. He, in fact, is no more dangerous to society than the motorcycle that he rides. Tragically, that was all about to be proven very, very wrong. His prison doctors recommended Kemper not live with his mother, but he was released back into the care of Clarnell. Back in that pernicious environment, Kemper seethed. From the perspective of people with this, what I will call psychopathic rage, nothing less than killing, torture, and mayhem is sufficient to give even momentary relief. And in May 1972, that fury would explode once again. After serving five years in a state mental institution for shooting his grandparents, now 21-year-old Edmund Kemper moved to Santa Cruz, California. He lived with his mother near the university where she worked. By the time he was released, Kemper had grown to be incredibly tall, towering over everyone with whom he came in contact. He grew to six foot nine, weighed 21 stone, 300 pounds. He was, in a way, almost a Frankenstein figure. With his criminal record as a juvenile sealed, Kemper was able to get a job with the Department of Transportation. But, criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley says, it ended prematurely. In 1973, Kemper was hit by a car while riding a motorcycle. Ed Kemper was involved in an accident and he received quite a lot of compensation for that, so around about $15,000. He injured himself quite badly in this accident, so he could no longer do his work for the, the State Highway Authority. So you've got a young man now who's got a lot of money, he's got a lot of time on his hands. With the money he received from the civil suit, Ed Kemper purchased a car, his Ford Galaxy. Now 23 years old, Kemper spent his days drifting, driving, 
and picking up young female hitchhikers. In the 1960s and early 70s, hitchhiking up and down the California highways was a common practice, and Edmund Kemper thrived on it. He starts cruising around. He starts going up and down the the state highways, and he's essentially doing trial runs. He's becoming aware that, that he can have access to people. He has the opportunity to harm people. Kemper would later claim that he picked up and dropped off as many as 150 young women. Criminal psychologist Rex Bieber says Kemper's interest in hitchhikers was about to take a dangerous turn. On May 7, 1972, Kemper's trial runs were over. He would drive around the university where his mother was working and pick up co-eds. And he describes this specifically as being done because those co-eds had a connection, however ephemeral or symbolic, with his mother and her place of work. He has a sticker on his car from the university where his mother works, so girls feel that they can kind of identify with him. And he doesn't look like a monster. He was out on one of his usual prowls for hitchhikers and came across two young students in Berkeley, Marianne Pesci and Anita Lucessa. The two young women were looking for a ride to Stanford University. They were both 18. These were co-ed girls. These were girls that were in college. They had their entire lives ahead of them. They were happy. And for him, this represented what he didn't have. These would often be girls that would reject him, and he couldn't have relationships with them, but he still wanted them. So this was his way of actually getting access to these women. Kemper drove the two young women out to the woods. He then handcuffed them both and stuffed Anita into the trunk of his car. Often he'll say to them, I'm not going to kill you, in order to placate them and and make sure that they they, they don't make a fuss and, and try and run away. One at a time, Kemper stabbed them, then suffocated each girl to death. He put the bodies in the trunk of his Ford Galaxy and took them home to an apartment he was renting near Santa Cruz University. Once home, Kemper had sex with the bodies before dismembering them. Journalist Jeffrey Wansel and criminologist Elizabeth Yardley talk about the psychology behind Kemper's sexual fixations. The horrifying aspect of Kemper now is that his sexuality is completely deformed. The only reason that he's not raping them before he kills them is that he doesn't want to be rejected by them. When you're having sex with a dead body, it's not going to reject you. It's not going to insult you or demean you in the same way that his mother had insulted or demeaned him. Kemper stashed the body parts in plastic bags, storing some parts in his home and others in the trunk of his car. This is something that's known as partialism. It's a a sexual arousal through, through keeping body parts. And I think for Kemper, this is his way of staying close to his victims, of owning them and possessing them and literally carrying a part of them with him. According to Detective Terry Medina, Kemper eventually dumped the body parts in the Santa Cruz Mountains near Berkeley. The bodies were found by two unsuspecting hikers. A couple that were out uh, hiking and walking their dog uh, came across these heads. Subsequently, we identified Marianne Pesh and Anita Lucessa, and we find out that these two young women were hitchhiking. Unbeknownst to us, 
Those were the first two victims of Edmund Emil Kemper. Four months later, in September 1972, Kemper killed again. This time, his victim was a 15-year-old girl named Aiko Koo. Kemper picked her up while she was hitchhiking to her ballet class in San Francisco. She was at a bus stop, and she missed the bus. She didn't want to be late for the dance class. She was so anxious about that and so frustrated, so she uh, started to look for rides. And Edmund Kemper was cruising the area looking for victims and pulled over. He drove across the Bay Bridge to San Francisco, but just kept driving. And this young girl knows now she is driving through San Francisco, not where she wants to go. He gets to Highway 1 and is now traveling south towards Santa Cruz. And she is just panicked and crying and wants to be let out. And he makes a turn on a country road. She has a chance here. He pulls into a field on the edge of a forest. He's going to kill her. He gets out of the car to get a weapon out of the trunk, a knife. She locks the door. She locks him out of the car. But she doesn't know how to start the car, let alone drive the car. Igo had protected herself from her kidnapper, but only for a moment. Kemper worked to gain the trust of the young girl, convincing her that he meant no harm. As he explained to us later, he spent over an hour coaxing her, encouraging her to unlock the car and let him in. As I recall, it was things like, I'm sorry, I'll let you go, let me in, I won't harm you. And she let him in and she was killed. Once back inside the car, Kemper wasted no time. He choked her to death and then raped her. This one really hurt me. This was really, this was really um, a difficult uh, victim for me. Uh, Ai Koko was this young Korean American girl who lived with her mother, who worked in the library at the uh, University of California at Berkeley. Her mother was dedicated to this young girl. She was a single mom raising this kid. She was learning how to dance and take ballet, and her mom made her costumes. Then, as if it were just a normal day, Kemper went to a nearby bar to have a few drinks all while Aiko's lifeless body lay in the trunk of his car. Kemper would later admit that after leaving the bar, he opened the trunk and, with a twisted sense of pride, said he admired his catch like a fisherman. He took her body back to his apartment where he mutilated it and had sex with the corpse. Journalist Jeffrey Wansel and criminal psychologist Rex Bieber say by this point, the storm inside Kemper was only growing. 
women were a source of rage. They became a focus of his sexuality. It evolved around death rather than around life. He didn't want to celebrate a relationship with a woman. He wanted to humiliate and to destroy a woman. But the one crucial characteristic of Kemper, something he has in line with many lust killers, is there are times when the level of rage, hatred, and intensity in him is truly beyond control. Detective Terry Medina says that during this time, local detectives had their hands full. There were at least three serial killers terrorizing the people of California, and between them, anyone could be a target. What we did not know at the time was during the time period of late 71 through the beginning of 73, two serial killers were operating in the same place at the same time Herbert William Mullen killed 13. So it was confusing to us. In the beginning, our thinking was they had to be connected. This is unusual. But the evidence did not connect them. Besides Herbert William Mullen, the Zodiac Killer was also operating in 1969. And Charles Manson was on trial in Southern California in 1970. The citizens of California lived in a state of constant fear. We had two stores in, in our community, and uh, they were selling out of guns and ammunition. In January 1973, Kemper struck again. This victim was 18-year-old Cindy Shaw. Cindy was a dedicated student and was just starting to make a life for herself, says her brother, Forrest Shaw. Oh, she was a rambunctious child. She was a very giving, caring individual. She took a job as an au pair in Santa Cruz, California, and attended school um, during the day, and then they would take care of the children uh, thereafter. And she went to, a, it was a junior college called Cabrillo. It was adjacent to the Cal State University of Santa Cruz. Forrest recalls those harrowing first days after she vanished. Well, it was very scary because, you know, we didn't know if she'd run away or had been, you know, abducted. It's the middle of the winter and very depressing and, you know, you just start thinking of things. Eventually, Forrest learned his sister's ghastly fate. She was hitchhiking home uh, from school. It's cold, and a car pulled up, and it had a school staff sticker on the bumper. From the police reports, they said that she probably felt comfortable getting in. Kemper drove the 18-year-old out to a remote area before fatally shooting her with a 22 caliber pistol. He placed her body in the trunk of his car before heading home and hiding the body in his closet. He had moved back in with his mother, and when she left for work in the morning, Kemper had his way with the victim. Kemper had sex with the body before decapitating and dismembering it in his mother's bathtub. He discarded the body by throwing the remains off a cliff, all except for the severed head. Kemper spent several days engaging in necrophilia with the head before burying it in his mother's garden. Kemper made a point to bury the head facing upward to his mother's bedroom. 
He said he did this because she, quote, always wanted people to look up to her. Perhaps most chillingly, Kemper was still subject to regular psychiatric analysis throughout his killing spree, a condition of his parole after serving time for killing his grandparents. He was having an interview, a final interview, with a psychiatrist in a nearby city. The psychiatrist, in his report to the court, said that Edmund Kemper was rehabilitated. The problem with that, that whole thing, Cynthia Shaw's head was in a bag in the back seat of Edmund Kemper's car at the time of that interview with the psychiatrist. You often see this type of behavior with serial killers. They get a kick out of it. They, they get bored with their offending and they want to mix things up and, and keep it interesting and have some fun. This kind of bizarre pseudo-schizophrenic logic is, is classic of a level of pathology we, we see in very few people in the world. On February 5th, 1973, just four weeks after killing Cindy Shaw. Kemper murdered again. This time, it was 23-year-old Rosalind Heather Thorpe and 20-year-old Allison Liu. He would later tell us that he actually shot them as he drove off a campus. Stabbing all these victims to death was getting to be a lot of work. It was starting to bother him. A lot of blood. He was cleaning everything. So he went and bought a gun, purchased a gun, and as he was traveling towards the city of Santa Cruz, he just turned and shot him. One was in the back seat, one was in the front seat. Kemper returned home with two bodies. When he was finished with them, he discarded their remains. A week after the murders, body parts washed ashore in Santa Cruz. As time went along, we were finding body parts on Cowles Beach. Other parts were found down below Monterey between Carmel and Big Sur. And that started to create huge issues as we started to identify people, Cynthia Shaw, Ikoko, a number of young women. Clearly, there was a pattern in the co-eds. Number one, they're young student women. They are stabbed to death, they are dismembered, common. And all the investigators starting to focus on, okay, now this is one set of crimes. And the thread that weaved between them was hitchhiking. During his 11 months of butchery, Kemper frequented a bar in downtown Santa Cruz called The Jury Room. It was here that his behavior took an even more sinister turn, say Detective Terry Medina, FBI agent Bobby Chacon, and criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley. It's a bar across from the courthouse. A lot of cops hang out there. A lot of people that work in the courts hang out there. Lawyers hung out there. And by all accounts, personally, Kemper was a gentle giant. Um, even some of the police officers he had befriended him described him that way. They called him Big Ed in a kind of friendly manner. So he knew that he was coming across as non-threatening. There's only one occasion that I remember seeing him there. He was at the far end of the bar. He didn't, like, push himself 
onto anybody that I saw. To me, it was almost like he was listening. Are any of the detectives there talking about any of these murder cases? Is he getting any information from us? Very interesting. He blended in very well there. Forrest Shaw has his own hypothesis. He was picking their brains. He was trying to find out if they knew anything. I don't fault the cops. You know, how the hell would they know? I've never faulted the police, by the way. They, they did their job. Yet things were about to start unraveling for Kemper. In April 1973, a diligent clerk in Santa Cruz ran a background check on a gun dealer's sales records. A records clerk at the sheriff's office finds a three by five card, Edmund Emil Kemper, same as on the dealer record of sale for the gun. All the information is blacked out, why? Because his record had been sealed. But she could read through the blackout and it said 187 PC, Madera, California. 187 PC is the California Penal Code for murder. Madera County was where he killed his grandparents many, many years ago. She brought that card to the detective lieutenant in the bureau and said, this gun has already been delivered to this guy. I'm not so sure he's supposed to have it, but his record is sealed. On April 6, 1973, two detectives went to question Kemper. When they got to his home, Kemper wasn't there. But as they were about to leave, the Ford Galaxy rolled into the driveway. Kemper drives up and they watched him get out of the car. Remember, he's six foot nine. He's huge, he blocked out the sun. They identified themselves and said, made the inquiry about, did you buy a gun? He said, yes, I did. They said, we don't think you're supposed to have this gun and we want it. Now he later said, I thought they knew I was the killer, that he was gonna open the trunk and shoot them both. But they're very good cops, good training. They took his keys. They wouldn't let him open the trunk. They made him move far to the side. The, uh, one of them opened the trunk, they took the gun, gave him a receipt, and they drove away. Unbeknownst to them, the police were now in possession of a murder weapon. Kemper knew that it would only be a matter of time before the police uncovered his dark secret. By the spring of 1973, serial killer Edmund Kemper had murdered a total of eight people in California. He'd killed both of his parental grandparents as a teenager and then went on to kill six young women who had been hitchhiking in and around the Santa Cruz area. However, Kemper's hideous slayings were about to come to an abominable end. Having just been visited by the police... Kemper decided to end his career as a serial killer with one final act. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley and criminal psychologist Rex Bieber give more insight into what Kemper was thinking at the time. 
Back in April of 1973, Kemper starts to get a little bit skittish because he's been visited by the police, and I think this is one of the things that brings about the murder of his mother. Ultimately, he believes that killing his mother is the only way to stop killing co-heads. He, he actually figures out the connection and decides, almost like a psychologist, I've got to kill my mom because that's the source of all my problems, and once I kill her, I won't be a killer anymore. On April 20th, 1973, Kemper waited for his mother to return from a party, says journalist Jeffrey Wansell. She got back. She was drunk. She was belligerent. She went to bed. Kemper went to see her. This young man, always seeking his mother's affection, and she sits up in bed and says, I suppose you want to talk all night now. And Kemper is so horrified and upset that in a way perhaps he just simply snaps at that moment. But interestingly, he doesn't kill his mother while she's awake. He kills her while she's asleep. Detective Terry Medina describes what happened next. At four o'clock in the morning, while his mother slept, he took a hammer, went to her bed, and drove the hammer through her skull a number of times. But he doesn't just kill her. Of course he doesn't. He decapitates her. He uses her head as a dartboard, throwing darts at it, shouting at it for an hour. Yelling at her, you're not going to yell at me anymore. You're not going to yell at me anymore. Finally, all the years of violent hatred for his mother led to what criminal psychologist Rex Bieber says was a unique and terrible act. And then he does something that I know of no other instance of this in serial crimes. He cuts open her neck, takes out her vocal cords. And remember, his mother's vocal cords were the offending organ, because that's how she demeaned him. That's how she criticized him. And he took her vocal cords and put it down a garbage disposal. After? Kemper returned to his usual tactics. He cut the body of his mother into pieces, washed them in the bathtub, and hid them in the back of his mother's closet. Then, out of necessity, Kemper had one final heinous act to commit. It was as if this was the only and inevitable ending of his entire life. And yet, there was a sting in the tail, a twist, because not only does he keep his mother's body in a cupboard and the head, but he invites her best friend round for supper the next night. Kemper needed a cover story as to why his mother disappeared. He decided she went on vacation with her best friend. The only problem with that? He needed to make the friend disappear as well. So Kemper invited 59-year-old Sarah Taylor Hallett to come over to the house for dinner. Mrs. Hallett walks in the door. He pretends to take her coat off, but just pushes it down over her arm so she can't move. Bludgeons her to death with his fists, stuffs her in the front closet. His car is already packed, and off he goes until he gets to Pueblo, Colorado. Kemper used Hallett's car to escape. He drove for three days, taking caffeine pills to stay awake. In the stolen car, three guns and hundreds of rounds of ammunition. He decides 
he's going to make a getaway. He knew the cops would be on his tail, and he'd planned to shoot it out when they tried to stop him. The shootout Kemper envisioned never happened. In fact, in the days after his final murders, there was no news about them. Impatient, on April 23rd, Kemper went to a phone booth and made an astounding call. He dials the Santa Cruz Police Department. It's a busy Friday night in Santa Cruz. Kemper calls officer, says, Santa Cruz Police Department, can I help you? I need to talk to Lieutenant Shear. He doesn't work on the weekends. You'll have to call back on Monday. I got to put you on hold. Kemper hangs up. He gets upset. He hangs up. He calls back, and he finally says, hey, I got information about all those dead girls. Former FBI agent Bobby Chacon says this is less surprising than it may seem. It's not a rarity. Oftentimes, serial killers are not the kind that are going to go down fighting. Oftentimes, we see that. They give themselves up, or once they're caught and they know that they're not going to get out, then they give it all up. It's almost like they want the notoriety. Local police arrived to arrest the man who just confessed to being the notorious so-called co-ed killer. Detective Terry Medina remembers what happened next. Kemper takes up the entire phone booth. They get him into custody, put a hold on him. And the story now starts to get filled in and unraveled. We sent the district attorney, the district attorney investigator, and my partner, uh, Detective Luffy. They flew to Colorado, rented a station wagon, and the four of them took three days to drive back to California. They started out by saying, Ed, can you tell us how all this started. And he sat there like I am sitting here. And he said, on such and such a date and such and such a time, I was in Berkeley, California. Kemper connects every dot to every single case. He was so precise, we were able to link the evidence to his statements to the crime scenes. As to why he confessed, journalist Jeffrey Wansel said that, after killing his mother, Kemper lost his murderous purpose. He said later, I started feeling the folly of the whole damn thing. But he said, and I think more tellingly, the original purpose was gone. And that was, of course, Clarnell. On May 7th, 1973, Edmund Kemper was indicted on the eight murders to which he had confessed. His trial began five months later on October 23rd. But there was a wrinkle in the case. Edmund Kemper pleaded not guilty. He had a great law team. They hired one of the best forensic psychiatrists in California, if not the United States. I gotta say, they put on a great defense. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley explains. He's all too aware that actually life in a state mental hospital is more favorable than life in prison. So he's making quite a calculated decision here to plead insanity, but he wasn't fooling anyone at this point in time. It's not our first rodeo. I've been to court a thousand times. You know what's coming. You know 
how a case is going to be attacked. On the prosecution side, we just keep putting the evidence in front of the jury and how it connects to Edmund Kemper. It came down to really his state of mind. On November 8, 1973, after just five hours of deliberation, the jury declared Edmund Kemper sane and guilty of first-degree murder on all eight counts. He received seven years to life on each count to be served concurrently. He is still serving his sentence at California Medical Facility in Vacaville, Solano County, California. Do I think Kemper is an evil man? The answer has to be yes. When I think of Icoco, when I think of his mother, no matter how he appeared outwardly, he is the definition of violence and evil. You pray nobody else is out there like that again. It was very difficult. I lost my sister. My mom lost her daughter. He's where he's supposed to be, and society's better off for that. And uh, I hope he never gets out. It didn't give me closure. Uh, I'm not sure if it gave me peace. You can cut this out, but I could write a letter to him right now saying, Dear Ed, fuck you. What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audio Boom's Rachel Jacobs, Blair Payton, Lauren Vogel, and by Nick Maverdeckis for Woodcut. Original music by Ben Kregi. Executive producers for Woodcut are Kate Beale and Janelle Patel, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. A special thanks to those involved with the case and families of the victims willing to share their stories. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite pods. If you have some time, please leave us a review. We appreciate it. On next week's episode of What Makes a Killer. In May 2012, at a home in Allenton, Derby, six children were fast asleep in their beds. In the early hours of the morning, the house quickly filled with smoke and was engulfed in flames. The two adults of the house had quickly escaped, but the children had not been so lucky. The fire brigade were in the house, flashing lights everywhere. I pushed to the front of the house. I could see the uh, firefighters bringing the children out, some in blankets, and the ambulance were trying to resuscitate some of them. The husband and wife publicly mourned the children, going before the British public and tearfully asking to be left to grieve in private. But it was all a facade. The husband knew exactly what happened, because he had deliberately started the fire. It was all part of an elaborate plan. 
I think that the most tragic part of this case is the fact that six children's lives were lost in attempts to basically rescue his own ego.